Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Tonight, for a very special episode of 3MA, we welcome uh, Darren Gray, game designer and the host of Roguelike Radio. Darren, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. And we also welcome back uh, our friend, co-president of Red Hook, Tyler Sigmund, a designer on Darkest Dungeon. Hello, hello. Uh, so, if... Darren's present, presence uh, hasn't already given the game away. Today we're going to be talking about roguelikes and their seemingly ever-expanding influence on gaming and strategy gaming. We're also going to talk about why a genre whose conventions and aesthetics are often self-consciously archaic has survived, thrived, and seemingly colonized huge, huge swaths of more mainstream gaming. Darren, I wanted to start us out by risking detouring us into a debate about definitions. Uh, we don't talk too much about roguelikes on this show. I'm certainly not the most familiar person with the genre. Uh, our resident expert is our producer, Michael Hermes, who is frantically trying to fix some audio issues so he can join us later in the show. Uh, we can't guarantee that. So you're just going to, have to, you're going to have to clue me in. You're going to have to hold my hand and speak to me as if uh, to a small child to explain what we're talking about when we talk about roguelikes and... Why the hell is the genre named after one game? Well, I'm not sure why the term has, has stuck around so much. Um, you might remember we used to call uh, FPSs Doom clones. But that, that name didn't really stick. Whereas roguelikes as a term has stuck uh, after the game Rogue, in 19, which was released in 1983. Which wasn't actually the first roguelike. Beneath Apple Manor was released a year before. But that's just a historical footnote now. Um, so roguelikes began... I suppose after Rogue itself, because the Rogue itself wasn't called a roguelike when it was released. I'm not sure it really had a name. Uh, it was a role-playing game, very Dungeons and Dragonsy, but set in random dungeons. And any time you died in the game, you had to restart the entire game, and the whole game would get remade with with random levels that were created using a procedural system. It was very based on uh, Dungeons and Dragons First Edition, which came with its own modules for random randomized dungeons. Following on from that, there was a whole host of different games in a very similar style. Um, Mario was a very famous one early on. Larn and Hack, uh, again, very similar games. Um, they're the same sort of top-down dungeon crawlers. Everything was grid-based. Every turn, you sort of moved one grid or took one action. Uh, so it made it very tactical games where you kind of you have to think ahead through your moves. Um, and because of the procedural generation, you never knew what was around the next corner. So as a kind of a, a role-playing game where you're playing this one guy that's moving about a dungeon, it was very effective because it, it properly got you into the role of that character because you, you really knew all that that character knew. You, even the items that you picked up wouldn't necessarily be identified. You wouldn't know what they were going to do. That potion you picked up could be a potion of healing or it could be a potion of death. Uh, later on, NetHack became the, the very dominant roguelike. And uh, the big thing with NetHack and a few other big roguelikes around the time was that it scaled everything up massively. So you have these huge dungeons to explore. Uh, and because everything was presented as very simple ASCII, you know, all the monsters were just letters, all the items were just symbols, uh, it let the game just cram loads of content in very easily without having to design lots of interesting graphics and animations and so on. And this sort of game stayed popular for quite a long time, right into the uh, 2000s and later. There was still a very core fan base for this style of game. And a big reason for that, really, was that 
a lot of AAA gaming was getting more and more interesting graphics over gameplay. And we've heard this bemoaned uh, countless times over the last decades. Um, and a lot of people came to roguelikes because they wanted to get away from that. They wanted something that was about the gameplay. And here were a bunch of games that either had very simple graphics or no graphics at all. And the entire emphasis was on the gameplay. Uh, the gameplay in roguelikes has to work because it's all there really is there. There has to be some interesting gameplay because you have to keep replaying it and replaying it. So the content has to be interesting. The interactions have to be fun and engaging. Now, more recently, we've seen the, the indie surge uh, lots of people, lots of bedroom programmers, lots of small startup studios and so on. And they've been experimenting with the kind of the roguelike idea. Uh, Spelunky was the first. Uh, Derek Yu uh, was a big roguelike fan and he decided to take NetHack and make a platformer out of it. And hence we got Spelunky. Um, directly inspired from that we had FTL uh, and a whole bunch of others, Binding of Isaac, um, don't Starve, uh, more recently the likes of Invisible Ink, and so on. I guess something I wanted to talk about with sort of your, your classic ASCII roguelike is just um, so I think for a lot, of, a lot of games coming out of that era, you almost look at them as like precursors to modern game genres. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of games that sort of had that, that you know, crude graphics, crude aesthetic, uh, you know, they tended to be superseded by uh, you know, more, more advanced uh, more advanced, more technically advanced sorts of games, and what, what's interesting is that the roguelikes sort of very self-consciously sort of stuck to that sort of ASCII presentation, uh, the, the sort of pure focus on gameplay. And I guess I, I'm curious, and this is to either one of you, why do you think, like, why do you think the roguelike? In, in sort of those, even those early incarnations, why do you think it was able to sort of survive and maintain its identity when so many other genres uh, sort of evolved into their their more modern counterparts? Uh, why why did the why did the why did the roguelike sort of end up, you know, like trapped in amber almost? I think uh, you mentioned the ASCII graphics. I think that that's a key point in terms of being able to sort of identify and classify something that comes from the same lineage, like going, oh, yeah, well, that's clearly a roguelike because it's, you know, like Dwarf Fortress or something where you could, um, you're going to group it in the family in some level just because of the graphical presentation. But I think that uh, maybe one reason why they've stuck around in that way is that um, by using, by making that decision that graphics are not going to be the focus of the product, uh, it frees you in a lot of different ways from having to make those jumps and try to stay, you know, relevant to state of the art of like current, you know, what is the current expectation of presentation? What is the current expectation of graphics and sound and et cetera, you know, by just kind of drawing a line in the sand and saying, look, you know, you're going to see at symbols running around and, you know, a small K is a cobalt or whatever, um, you know, just accept that. And once you've accepted that, there's still just so much that you can do within the game. And, in fact, I think one of the really key parts is that when you look at like the, the crazy things that can happen in like a net hack or something, um, that would be incredibly hard to depict some of those situations if you weren't doing it with ASCII graphics. Um, you know, there's like, I call it like, in a way, it's like a, a finale of statement of, you know, if something crazy happens in net hack and it says, you know, 
you tried to use this item on this and this was the result, you just buy it because, you know, okay, it was told to me that that happened and you can kind of envision what happened. But if I had to work with the animator and the modeler and the effects artist and, you know, to try to account for every possible weird situation that might result from, you know, all the interesting ways in which the game systems interact, it would be beyond the scope of a game that you could make. You know, it'd be, it'd be almost beyond the scope of a Skyrim or something. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I would say that roguelikes never really got superseded by other games. And in particular, you know, a lot of um, popular games, um, uh, not only didn't, did they not have that depth of gameplay with the myriad interactions, but a lot of them weren't too interested in having that, and that, that's not necessarily going to sell very well to a, a wider audience. Um, I mean, part of me wonders why didn't the opposite happen? Why didn't roguelikes kind of spread out more than they did? They they remained a very niche thing, and they had this lasting appeal. Mm-hmm. Um, and recently we've seen this kind of taking of roguelike mechanics and spreading them around. Uh, there were commercial roguelikes back in the 90s. Uh, Shirin the Wanderer on the SNES um, was very popular amongst people that, that were fans of it. And it was a, a deep, complex, extremely interesting roguelike. Um, properly, you know, turn-based, grid-based, uh, complex interaction sort of game. Um, but it didn't take off in a big way that that kind of you're now seeing with roguelike mechanics in other games. So, yeah, I'm not sure why why it hasn't happened earlier. Yeah, that's a good point. There's there's definitely like a gap where, um, you know, and I wonder if to some degree, you know, it's it, people like to, one thing we've noticed is just like, people like to kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater uh, in the sense of um, maybe some of the mechanics were associated with the graphics and therefore there was sort of just prevailing wisdom that, well, you can't do some of those procedural things, you know, um, if you're not doing simple graphics or whatever. And then, you know, in the same way, like pixel art took a while to have a resurgence. Um, Like, I think it took a little bit of time where things had moved on clearly past pixel art in general for it to then come back and say, hey, you know what, we kind of miss this. Um, And there's a little bit of nostalgia. And I wonder if, you know, a little bit was nostalgically borne out, but then, you know, once people got their hooks into it, they start realizing, wait a second, the mechanics are still really solid. And in fact, um, there's so much to learn mechanically from classic games, you know, roguelikes and non-roguelikes. And so then, you know, especially in this age of sort of smaller budget games again, where where it's viable to be an you know independent developer, then you know you, you have to kind of look for those things because you can't just wow with sheer you know sheer volume of of content or um, you know production values or whatever that you know when you look at a lot of games, um, you know maybe even something like an Uncharted, it's like just it's a very well crafted game and I'm not knocking it because I really enjoy it, but it's it's almost like just movie like visuals right and it's not the mechanics that are really driving you it's kind of just this experience and roguelikes are all about the mechanics and that's that's one of the great strengths uh so i wanted to ask you i i think when when i think of the genre i i sort of view it as, as this well i described it earlier as trapped number and and i think that's probably the way i i thought of it for for many years because to me like uh, older roguelikes sort of all looked alike. They all appeared to be doing the same sort of thing, uh, variations on some very familiar themes. And it always left me a bit cold because I, I couldn't stand the, the punishing aspect of it. And I want to talk about that later. Uh, but, I, but I am curious, for, for people who follow the genre, um, 
you know, how did how did roguelikes so, sort of evolve from the outside? If you don't play them, th- they all look very similar. But I'm curious, like, what were the what were sort of the dominant design trends? Uh, you know, as uh, like that kept the genre interesting for people. Well, yeah, I would say as an insider, the, we definitely I can certainly see a lot more differences. Um, I mean, I I can't stand NetHack myself, but I I absolutely love Adom. It's my probably my favorite roguelike. But uh, to someone that encounters the two separately, might think they're just the same game. Um, the, the the original Rogue was a fairly small, tightly designed game. Um, it had 24 dungeon floors, I think, and uh, only a, a limited number of items and monsters. Things escalated as the, the roguelike genre evolved. Um, there was two main strands to the roguelike family. It often gets called the roguelike tree, where you got what were called the hacks on one side and the bands on the other. The bands were from a game called Angband, uh, which is based on kind of Tolkien lore very heavily um, and had uh, a few sort of individual features that you wouldn't find in other roguelikes, such as uh, non-persistent levels. If you go up and down the stairs, you get a completely different level each time. Um, and they had really big levels, really huge levels that stretched beyond the limits of your screen. It would take a very long time to explore it fully. The idea being you wouldn't explore it fully. You just kind of use these infinite levels that you've got to to find whatever you need. And then on the other side was what were called the hacks, which is mostly known uh, from NetHack, which epitomized the, the kind of simulationist design in roguelikes. Um, things like... Uh, Things like if you have a, a cockatrice corpse, it can it can petrify things. So if you don't handle it correctly, you can end up petrified yourself. Um, if you polymorph yourself into a creature that can eat metal, then you can start eating the swords in your backpack for sustenance. And it had a lot of uh, very simulationist stuff like that. Stuff like uh, shopkeepers would be found on the level and could be encountered as sort of separate entities. And if you anger them, they'll start trying to kill you. Uh, unlike in Angband, you go into a shop and it's just a menu screen that appears, a bit like in Final Fantasy-style games. Uh, so those are the two kind of dominant strands right up to the early 2000s, I would say. And there's a few other kind of offshoots, Larn and Adom and Dungeon Crawl would be the, the main ones that are known to roguelike fans, and they all have their own interesting twists in them. Um, in the 2000s, things began to change quite a bit. Uh, as what I would call modern game design became much more of a, a thing in roguelike spheres. Traditionally roguelikes are made entirely by hobbyist coders and still today the kind of the core roguelike community is is shaped around hobbyist people. Um and a lot of the time the reasons things were added to roguelikes, like a new monster, new item, whatever, was because, oh that seems like a fun idea. Rather than this is an interesting uh, or helpful thing for game balance or game design, this will restrict the player in interesting ways, etc. So in the early 2000s, people became much more interested in smaller scope games. Um, and two important developments then were a game called Powder, uh, which was like a very miniature version of NetHack, which was made for the, the Game Boy Advance, and uh, Doom the Roguelike, which was a roguelike based on Doom. Hmm. Um, and it had a focus on ranged combat, was very quick to play, had a relatively small number of levels could be beaten much more quickly than most of the giant roguelikes that were around at the time. And these changed people's perceptions of what a roguelike could be. Um, at the same time, in the roguelike community, we had started up what was called the, the seven-day roguelike challenge, 
um, which started 11 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a game jam, as they become known these days. Back then, we didn't have anything called game jams, but this is what this was. It's make a game in seven days and make a roguelike in seven days. And this completely altered people's perceptions previously of roguelikes because people only had in their head this idea of really giant games like Nehack, where you've got hundreds of monsters and thousands of items and so many interactions and so on. And instead, the focus became on really interesting, tightly designed games with novel mechanics. Still the focus on the gameplay, like entirely the focus on the gameplay, but taking the procedural content and the interactions into lots of different ways than you would see before. And then, of course, we've had the much more interesting, uh, sorry, the much more recent development of taking some of the mechanics of roguelikes out of the genre entirely and fusing them with other genres and getting strange and wonderful new creations out of that. Was, and so is this community, I'm, I'm curious because I'm, I'm an outsider to this community, is it, has it always been generally like the same people like playing and making roguelikes? Like is it a really sort of inward looking like hobby within a hobby? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of curious like if, if there's like a roguelike audience, a roguelike constituency uh that's sort of been sort of hived off from from general gaming and sort of just sort of obsessed with the genre yeah definitely and it's probably similar to a lot of other kind of niche genres like war gamers and so on that are are very into their own little corner of gamedom um there's a especially well-known thing in uh roguelike circles of roguelike players also being roguelike developers um Mm -hmm. there's been a lot of push in the past to either make your own roguelike um, or contribute something to an open source roguelike because so many roguelikes are open source Um, and part of that is that because there's no graphics and there's no audio and there's very little story and um, there's a lot of things kind of standardized a lot of games um, making your first roguelike isn't that hard getting into it uh, you don't need to be a fancy artist you don't need to uh, do a lot of writing things. You can start off coding and get something interesting within a few hours. So it's been very open for people to make the first game as a roguelike. Uh, in fact, a lot of people in the community, you know, learn to code through roguelikes and other things like that. I think that's a really cool point about um, what you're saying about how it's kind of built up features over time, rather than um, you know a lot of I guess well I don't know if traditional is the right word, but a lot of game development is kind of done as you, you kind of lay out a vision and then you you sort of try to estimate all the features that are going into the product at the beginning. And then in reality, of course, like things change and game development's anything <laughs> but stable. But um, but yeah, it's sort of a different approach from the idea of building a core system and then just modularly adding things on, you know, almost like a stack of pancakes. But I think that that's both, I think that's a really interesting um, strength, I guess, of the, of the genre of just the fact that ideas can beget ideas, which can beget ideas. You know, you, you look at the way they're developing Dwarf Fortress, and I know it's not a pure roguelike, but I just like to use that as an example of of d- just contrasting, I guess, development. Um, you know, it's just kind of flowing naturally from feature to feature to feature. And sure, there's kind of maybe a global plan of what they want to accomplish, but sometimes you get down a rabbit hole and then you say, oh, well, this is really interesting. What if we added to that? You know, and then... Um, and that's so evident, I guess, because the chain of custody of something like, you know, a net hack where it's it's not all made by the same people. It's almost as though your your modders and your original developers are just all mixed together or there's, um, you know, I, I, it's an interesting concept that maybe the life cycle of a product could could eventually be completely in the hands of people that didn't even start with it. 
Um, mm. You know, as wave analogy, this is a weird analogy, but I'm, I'm on this uh, Ultimate Frisbee team, which I, you know, I realized I look at the shirts and it's like the team's been around since like 2001 and I've been on it like two years or something, three years. Um, and I, I realized that no one on the team was actually there when it was started. Um, and that's a, that's kind of a cool concept. And I love that idea of, of, I guess the open source ones of that, you know, the idea that a game outlives its original creators and sometimes do its greatest gain, you know, the idea that other people might see an interesting idea that, that, um, the original creators didn't, you know, and of course I suppose sometimes that might lend itself to like a, a sort of leaning tower of Pisa sort of situation where maybe it gets away from what it wanted to be and it, <laughs> you know, maybe it gets to that point, Darren, you were saying about, uh, or maybe this was on the prologue before we start talking about that. Maybe something gets to a point that it's so complex that it's now, you know, it's a, it's maybe not as approachable as it was before, just because people have eagerly added to it, you know, over time. But that's a really neat, I guess, part of part of the games. I think it's one reason why, like Rob was saying yesterday, this niche has survived and we've had this kind of trapped in amber uh, community, as it were. Uh, so many people in the roguelike community aren't just players. They're really very invested in the, the games that they play. Um, there's, there's something I found in the roguelike genre in particular that I haven't seen in other genres, and maybe maybe it does and I just haven't seen it. But there's this um, very special setup you get in quite a lot of the bigger roguelikes of a kind of a, what I call the garden minions setup of development, where you've got one person or one core group of people um, implementing the code and implementing the features, but they actually have a thousand minions that are all playing the game and suggesting features and suggesting refinements and this constant wave of feedback and criticism and ideas and suggestions. And Dwarf Fortress is a, a wonderful example of this because you have Tarn Adams there doing all the coding, but he is inundated with all these sorts of ideas and um, mm -hmm. he can pick and choose which ones he thinks are good or bad. And it leads to these big detailed games and it leads to a very dedicated community because they they have a sense of ownership in this game that they've suggested these things and they're in the game so darren you said you said something earlier that just uh, i i'm curious about because i'm not sort of I, i'm not sort of privy to these debates within the community but you mentioned that you can't stand nethack uh and i and i'm kind of curious because that's that's the game i i probably hear uh referred to the most as sort of a classic roguelike design, sort of a genre-defining game. Um, I'm curious, what are the issues you identified with, uh, with, with, with NetHack? What about it sort of left you cold? Well, the primary thing, um, at least the, the most initial kind of shock from it, is the interface, because it has a, a very archaic interface where if you want to wield a sword, you have to press the W command, and then choose the sword, the letter assigned to that sword in your inventory. And it can very easily end up you wielding a hat by accident or something, or, <laughs> or you know, trying to do a different command. It's, it's not a very intuitive interface at all. It's one of these organically grown interfaces that, that um, I think hasn't turned out very well. And there's, there's modern versions of that that fix that, I must say, that people have made modifications, made uh, because it's open source, uh, and made versions where the interface is much improved. Um, but there are other things in the game which I would just classify as outright bad design. Uh, in roguelite lore, NetHack is famous for being the game which has everything including the kitchen sink. Mm -hmm. um, it 
it has a kitchen sink as an item that is in the game, and it has special interactions with the kitchen sink. <laughs> um, so much of the game design is bad, in my opinion. Uh, in, in terms of it, it wasn't really designed. There was a bunch of people who were coding things, a lot of people suggesting things. Stuff got thrown into the game because isn't this a funny idea? Mm-hmm. And that includes you having... Um, you know, choosing the wrong, picking up an item which you think is a reward for a quest, and it turns out if you pick up that item, you get cursed, and it doesn't actually say that anywhere in the game, and you'll die somewhere later in the game and find out you're cursed and wonder why that happened, and not actually have any feedback on that. It includes enemies that can kill you in one if you didn't know their special trick before you encounter them. Um, includes all sorts of uh, kind of abuses you can get, like max out your XP with certain abuses, um, and there's certain ways you can kind of repeatedly do things, scumming or grinding, to get certain things in the game to, in order to, to let you win. Um, it encourages some bad gameplay on that side. You can start off in the game and walk three steps and end up in a poison spike trap and die. With, and there's nothing you could have done. Uh, similarly, you could walk a few steps and find a really cool armor that will make you invincible for the next ten floors. So that sort of like, unbalanced approach... Uh, undesigned approach uh, I personally take exception to um, and I certainly in modern kind of roguelike criticism roguelike communities there's a general recognition that okay Nehak is, is a giant of the genre it has lots of wonderful interesting things um, but it's it's not necessarily how you would build a roguelike today I'm that's something I wanted to get to today when we talk about sort of the current state of the genre um, what 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 sort of defines a modern roguelike? Uh, not sort of the roguelike like likes or whatever. The, the we'll we'll discuss those later. But games that are clearly working within that tradition, uh, they're more recent. What what are the characteristics of sort of the modern approach to building a good roguelike these days? And what are some games that sort of exemplify uh, the, the the state of the art, as it were? Well, I would say these days the focus is on. Uh, small and experimental games. Um, the seven-day roguelike challenge brings out a lot of these, but uh, we see other things that, that do this. And um, By experimental, I mean that they do certain gameplay elements that you maybe haven't encountered before. Um, and I say small, but small as in compared to NetHack. They can still be quite long and meaty and interesting, but um, you're not having to learn 50 key commands to do it. To play the game, you you may be learning a much more restricted uh, set of inputs, uh, much more intuitive set of inputs. Um, my favorite example from recent years is Hoplite, uh, which is a uh, small mobile game um, set on a very small map, and you have only two or three interactions that you have, but at least there's some really interesting tactical situations, um, and it uses a progression system that's fairly different from other roguelikes. It uses attacks that are very different from other roguelikes. Unlike most roguelikes, you can't just bump into enemies to kill them. You have to kind of sideswipe them or jump over them. So it leads to you carefully considering your different uh, positions. Um, another recent example is um, Tales of Magiel, is perhaps the quintessential modern roguelike. Uh, it's got thousands of followers. It's got tons of content, but it's got an excellent mouse-driven UI. Um, it's got... Passable graphics. Um, in fact, most roguelike players think it's got amazing graphics, but you show it to someone outside the roguelike scene, they think, yeah. Um, 
But uh, it also has a lot of very interesting, unique uh, interactions in the game. It has, um, it, it's a fantasy game, but it's got, for instance, a, a chronomancer, with someone that can actually manipulate time in the game. And it does that through actually saving, making save states and letting you like, do different actions and then causes different results in that based on actual sort of timeline transgression in that. And it's got other kind no, of... Nice very interesting, inventive, thoughtful interactions in the game that aren't just um, find a sword which has a bigger number on it and hit, hit bump into the thing <laughs> till its number goes down to zero. It's mm-hmm. trying to be a bit more interactive. It gets rid of potions, for instance, because potions are this thing you find in games that you end up hoarding them forever and then forgetting to use them, or you end up hoarding so many that you're, you're invulnerable. So it uses a lot of cooldown-based abilities, so you can't just build up lots of attacks. You've got a time your attacks with the different cooldowns which in a turn-based roguelike gets really interesting because you're having to think lots of moves ahead to think well I'll use this ability now and then I'll get to use it again in five turns but before that happens I'll need to heal myself with this ability and you're, you're thinking through things like that that's Tales of Magiel which uh, yeah, it's a big roguelike but it's, it's got a lot of inventive stuff in it so yeah the thing for me would be trying to games that try and do something that the player hasn't seen before somehow yeah, I mean, Crypt of the Necrodancer is, I think, another example there where um, you still do the same, you know, bump into the guy next to you, but you have to move to the beat. Um, you know, and I love I love the the elevator pitch of that game, which is just a rhythm-based roguelike. Um, you know, and I, I find that that one's really just, yeah, it's, it's sort of out of left field where um, it, it's a very non-obvious extension of of the genre, but... It, to- it it really works, you know, and then it's kind of a neat, like, you you still have to kind of use the turn-based nature to predict, um, you know, where you're going to be and where the enemies are going to be and what the effect of making a move, but then there's the, A, the time pressure of the music, and B, the fact that you you benefit from moving in time to the music, you know, not just a matter of there being a you know, sort of a, I guess, a shot clock on your move, but, um, you know, the enemies are moving to the music, and so you, you know, you need to uh, you need to do as well. And then if you can stay kind of in the beat, then you get sort of, you know, uh, other bonuses accrue and things like that. And the graphics are kind of, uh, you know, they're really well done pixel graphics, which is kind of a nice, uh, it, it still sort of falls within what I guess I would say, you know, there's, there's sometimes an assumption that if it's roguelike, yeah, the graphics are going to be certainly low five of some level, but they're still really pleasing to look at. So, you know, you're not, uh, you know, for a game like that, it, it makes sense not to be using ASCII, for example, but they didn't push it, you know, and try to um, try to go crazy 3D or anything like that. I'm a little curious when I hear you describing these games. I mean, the, some of the things you're describing seem like the point where the descriptor, like the calling them a roguelike seems almost stretching the definition to the breaking point, right? Where like they're, they're now pushing beyond what we've seen before so much that increasingly they, they, they seem almost like spinoffs of, of this classic genre. And I'm curious, you know, is, is there sort of a d- debate? Like is, is the, is there sort of a purist school that's popped up within, within the community of, well, this is all well and good, but let's, let's be clear. It's, it's not a real roguelike. Uh, cause some of this just sounds, uh, you know, very far removed from what I would have considered a, a roguelike. There is definitely, uh, a lot of debate and it's kind of understandable because you got a, an actual roguelike community that's only really interested in, in Thinky games, as I kind of call them, because in roguelikes that are turn-based, you're constantly having to think. It's not about your dexterity. It's not about how well you can time a jump or anything like that. Um, 
but the, there has been that debate around for a very long time, to be honest. Dwarf Fortress um, call, has caused a lot of stir historically. Is this a rogue? Like, is it not? Well, it's got ASCII, but oh, what does that matter? Um, uh, yeah. Uh, and certainly what we're seeing a lot of these days is games that, I mean, I would say are definitely not roguelikes, but are using roguelike mechanics. Um, and they're using them very interestingly and stuff, but um, if they're not turn-based, I'm not necessarily going to be that interested in them because they don't bring that kind of play style that, that actually makes me interested in the game. I'm all about the kind of the tactics in the game. And you know, if I'm having to time a jump correctly or if I'm having to do a, a fast-paced shootery type thing, that's just not my thing. Um, but... Uh, yeah, there's there's always been a kind of a, a a debate around the use of the term and what it what yeah. it really means. Everyone kind of has their own definition. Yeah, I've really noticed because uh, we're I don't know I have very firsthand experience in terms of um, Darkest Dungeon is you know occasionally referred to as a roguelike or roguelike like or has roguelike elements and we've we've at various points used uh, some of that in the marketing for the game too, and it's kind of interesting because. Uh, we didn't really set out to do that, but there's a, there's a huge value in, in terms of, um, communicating sort of complex concepts in a short you know number of words. Um, and so, you know, obviously I think that's one of the reasons why the name has gotten popular. Like Darren, um, was saying earlier, and again, I can't remember this is before we started recording that, you know, only a few years ago, or if you go back maybe five years only a very small selection of people would know what you meant if you said roguelike. Uh, whereas now today, it's a much broader uh, part of the gaming populace. I still think it's it's not. Um, I don't think it's it's you know a, a huge percentage of the gaming populace. You know when you when you're looking at all games together, including you know the Call of Duties and things like that. But certainly a lot of people now kind of understand loosely what roguelike means and what that's meant is uh you know and i think that's come about because it is a convenient way to explain a few mechanics instantly um and i think where you know the problem comes in just i guess in the same that you 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 know any terminology is well okay when i say roguelike am i by necessity is it all all of the key roguelike features or is it some you know or a few and that's where, you know, then all the roguelike elements or roguelike likes or roguelites, um, you know, but but I, I think going back maybe even further, um, what I find interesting is just that, you know, maybe unfairly the term roguelike is being used, but the beauty of kind of like, you know, a, a classic roguelike is that it's really just a game in a nutshell. And what I mean by that is like a game usually, you know, you want like a a really clear objective and you know in so many of the classic roguelikes it's, it's pure well you need to ascend to level 40 and either destroy the wizard or get the amulet or you know whatever it is so you can explain the goal of the game you know in one sentence or less um, but the path to achieving the goal is incredibly complex and convoluted and requires your own problem solving and um, everybody's experience is different and you know etc and so i think um, one of the things that's maybe spawned like a resurgence in what's being broadly painted as roguelikes, but maybe, you know, a little bit too in, in a simplified way. It's just that people are craving, again, having a game where you know what you're going to do. There's interesting systems that are kind of modularly built up that each system by itself isn't incredibly complex, but when you 
when you when you see them all interacting together, then that creates this really interesting play space where you can experiment. And you know, it's very much the antithesis of the rail shooter, mm-hmm. um, you know, or something like that. And so I think people are just craving. Like like I'm looking right now at a lot of the games that inspire me. And I've got these stacks of Commodore game boxes that I have still kept, and you know, the beauty of that classic age is just that you kind of had to, you know, the game itself had to stand as we talked about you and um, the mechanics were exposed, you know? And so, so it's like really when you're saying roguelike, I think you're saying a game in its purest, purest form. And then of course there's, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not a purist. I understand that the term, um, you know, if, if you really want to get accurate, you should defend the term, but I think people are loosely using it because there's no other convenient way to kind of explain in one word, you know, um, essentially what's what's making a, a game like this compelling, you know, replayable and celebration of failure and modular and all these sorts of things. So I think anytime that you have like a few of those qualities, then then the term's being thrown around. And so um, tying that back to what I was saying about Darkest Dungeon is that um, we were definitely inspired by roguelikes, but we never set out to make a roguelike. And strictly speaking, it's not a pure roguelike. You know, it has roguelike elements. Um, but one of the interesting things is the more we described it, we found it just easier to say roguelike or roguelite or et cetera. Because people, again, in one word, you could explain many of the mechanics. Oh, so there's permadeath. Yeah, there's permadeath, kind of. Hmm. Your characters have permadeath, but your estate doesn't. Um, there's procedural dungeons. Yep, there are. But, you know, they're not to the extent that, say, a NetHack is or something like that. Um, there's Celebration of Failure. Yep, we've got a graveyard where, you know, once your favorite hero dies, you can go and kind of see, and it remembers how they died, and we're going to be paying that off a bit more. And so I just found, you know, from a perspective of explaining the game, you know, I just had to almost give up and just say, okay, I'm just going to say... And then when you're writing, just hypothetically, like you're writing, you're writing the tagline for your Steam page, you know, it's not the place to get into the debate of kind of accuracy. You know, I don't say, well, it's it's a game that has many roguelike elements, but, you know, isn't actually a pure. <laughs> so you just kind of, you're like, all right, let's call it a roguelike and we'll argue about it in the comments. You know, that, it's that sort of thing. It just has value in, you know, the language of communication, communicating a, a complex idea. So audio quality be damned. I got to chime in here. That is Michael Hermes, our producer, who has been struggling with crap computing software for about an hour. Welcome to the show, Michael. Hey, thanks. Glad to be here. Uh, it's actually hardware problems that I'm having, but regardless. Um, I think that the the topic of of the the defensiveness of the genre and the the you know the defining characteristics of a roguelike are, are something that's near and dear to me because the, the genre as a whole became a big part of my gaming habits and uh, dungeon crawl stone soup is probably, well, I know for a fact it's my most uh, played game, um, you know, in total, uh, is the concept of permadeath. Mm-hmm. And I think permadeath as a game concept um, is extremely fascinating because I'm a 32 year old grown ass man. And I have not felt a sense of accomplishment in gaming since I was like a little kid and you beat Super Mario Brothers, and you may have had a game genie, but it didn't matter. But you were like, holy shit, I did this, and it was great. In the roguelike genre, the, the holdover from the original games, where there simply physically was the limitation that you could not save the game, is that it is an all-or-nothing, full-on permadeath. You either win or everything is completely wiped out. 
And there are games that have kind of tried to co-opt this, and I think of a game like Rogue Legacy, which claims to have you know, something like permadeath, but in essence, it's actually really more like infinite lives, right? Like, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of the opposite of, 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 of permadeath. Whereas just this weekend, I concluded a game of, of Dungeon Crawl by dying, um, and after seven hours and 30 minutes of playtime, I died, and it's done. It's gone. And I've played uh, 1,038 games, of dungeon crawl and I've won three times. And the first time I won, I called my wife into the room <laughs> and I said, look, look at what is, look at what is about to happen. And she dutifully was very happy for me. Um, but it's the first time, and this was, uh, you know, a couple months ago. You're still married, right? I am. <laughs> yeah. she, she is terrific. <laughs> it, like it's, it's a, it's a game concept that makes you, I, I was actually super happy Proud, sure, maybe, I don't know. When I total up the hours I've spent, I don't know how proud I am. But the point is, is it, it reinforces a concept that I've always found very interesting, which is games as a skill set. And games as a skill set applies to something like Dungeon Crawl, and it applies to something like Dota, where there's a certain sense of accomplishment where you've done something. And it goes down to not only learning the interface or learning the commands or actually beating the game. is You've done something that other people aren't able to do. And it comes from what you could describe as an acquired taste, which means you have to do something but not like it for a long time until you've convinced yourself you do like it. <laughs> um, and you, you, you've you accomplished something. And it's it's silly. It's a video game, and you've accomplished it. But you say, yes, I love roguelites. This is great. I love it, and I, I've, I've beaten this game, and it's awesome. And other people, you know, they want... They have different expectations of the genre, but they all incorporate different elements of gaming. And if I could channel my inner Tom Chick for a moment... Um, Rob, you're a you you enjoy coffee, right? Oh, like nobody's business. Like nobody's you enjoy coffee, so you're somewhat of a coffee aficionado. And let me ask a question: when you when you drink your coffee, do you put cream or sugar into it? Take it black. Take it black, right? As do I. As do all good God fearing uh, individuals. Um, <laughs> when you drink black coffee. No, nobody starts out really liking black coffee because there's a lot of really bad black coffee and there's a certain bitterness to it. But there's also a certain, if you want to call it machismo or a certain sense of pride that, that you're drinking it the way it's sort of sort of meant to be made. And I don't know about you, but I do secretly judge the people in front of me who put in three creams and five sugars. But the point is, you drink it black. And let's say you and I are at Starbucks and I sat down next to you and you said, oh, you've got your coffee. I was like, yeah, I love black coffee. And then I put in three creams. And you said, well, I... I thought you loved black coffee. When I say, well, I do, but it's, it's kind of too bitter for me, so I put in the creams. Yeah, I love black coffee. <laughs> well, okay, that's fine. I guess it's not really black coffee anymore. And I say, whoa, whoa, whoa. You can't tell me this isn't black coffee. This, this is the way I like it. I don't like this one part, but I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll add it. And then Troy saunters in, and he sits down with a frappuccino whipped cream. As he would. <laughs> as he would. And... I say to Troy, oh, you like black coffee, too? Oh, yeah, I love black coffee. I got my black coffee right here. And then Rob reasonably says, guys, come on. Really? This this is black coffee now? And it says, well, look at the Starbucks. It says Starbucks new original Frappuccino black coffee. And it's just like the, the term gets co-opted into something else that it's not. And it takes the teeth out of the sense of a game as a skill set. When you beat NetHack, even if your skill was patience and looking up in the wiki, how to get through the game is still an accomplishment. And the the game concepts for me, you know, Darren, you said your your defining characteristic is turn-based. For me, it's permadeath because it's the thing that makes the game 
worth playing. Anymore. But but wait, isn't permadeath though the very reason that everyone is suddenly drinking things that are not black coffee and calling them black coffee? Like it seems to me like permadeath has become this weird. It, permadeath has become, I think, probably the most exported product of the roguelike genre, right? And I'm not even sure it really comes from that because when I first started seeing it pop up uh, really popularly was um, when permadeath experiments started happening with Far Cry 2. Uh, suddenly a bunch of people were just playing Far Cry 2 with one life to live. And once you died, you, you, you were done. That was, that was your run. Uh, but, it, but it sort of seems like permadeath, the, that sort of seems like one of the prime culprits behind, let's call it the watering down or co-optation mm-hmm. of the roguelike identity. Right, like, oh well, I'm making this game. It's got, it's got, it's, it's sort of a roguelike. And what they mean is, once you fail, you you die permanently, or you suffer some sort of massive setback that undoes the, by and large, the majority of the progress you, you you've made. And and that sort of that sort of seems interesting. That's that's the defining element for you. But I think that's also the element that is probably the most borrowed and the most co-opted. Probably that and procedural, you know, both in terms of what you're saying of the, of the borrowing. I think. That loosely speaking, you know, when there's procedural, people want to lump it in, or like you're saying, yeah, permadeath. I think that there's there's a specific game design nexus there. The the combination of randomized levels and randomized content plus permadeath, so that when mm-hmm. you die, you have to redo everything again. And it's not just roguelikes that have that. Arcade games of old have that. Tetris mm-hmm. has that. It has, you know, it's it's different every time you play it. If you fail, you die. You have to start again from the original. And there's a kind of a there's a psychological element to that, but uh, there's also a lot of interesting design implication to that because when you're forced to have to replay the same randomized content every time, the designer has to make it really good for it to work. So I think this is why we've seen it really take off. Designers that are interested in making good games get into this this kind of combination of these two and and do it in lots of other interesting ways. I want to talk a little bit. Uh, to to the point Michael brought up about accomplishment as well, because I'm not entirely sure I grant the premise. It's it's something that it's it's something that I tend to get a little suspicious of. Uh, the the idea that I, I'm of two minds about this, which is, which is why I'm hesitating, because I know I've been guilty of, and I have said you know at times myself, like I remember when games required a lot of skill. Uh, it was an accomplishment to to beat a game. We talked about beating games, right? Whereas, I, I think a lot of like certainly in the mainstream, to go to like the Uncharted example, uh, yeah, there's some difficult parts of the of the game where like you, your shooter skills probably have to be a, a little a little higher. But by and large, a game like Uncharted is designed for you to be the hero, for you to get through successfully. Congratulations, you just mowed down fifty people. Here, enjoy this. 20 minute segment of a movie uh this is great and i tend i I certainly sort of get nostalgic for days when there was a lot of like to go to a a game genre i play i I refer to a lot like sort of space uh space sims right your your free spaces your tie fighter where like you'd beat Mm -hmm. a hard mission and you felt like damn I'm like Starbuck out there. Like I, I'm an ace pilot. That's fantastic. Look at look at what I can do now. But at the same time, I, I think I look at it, I look at some of those things I see see in roguelikes, 
and to go to the point of like a net hack where you you can you can sort of you just sort of beat your head against it and you read the wiki you internalize all this communal knowledge uh and and then you sort of walk that tightrope and get through it and i kind of feel like in cases like that 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 sense of accomplishment is is like this is like this baited hook because what you're doing actually isn't like there's not that much of you going into the game. You're just sort of plugging into this collected knowledge and then expending precious, precious hours of your life on run after run to apply it correctly so you can get to the end of a game that may not even be that well designed. But just just to say you did, I beat it, I accomplished something. And I tend to be very suspicious of that. Uh, and and so like I get I get the I get the drive for for games that pay off in that regard games that you finish them and you feel like you've done something but at the same time I tend to be a little wary of the impulse to play a game that pays off on that level does that make sense a little bit um, how far have you gotten at the likes of of NetHack and that. Oh god, me not very far at all. Um, okay. Like I tend, I tend to bounce off those games because generally, you know, interface drives me insane. But I think, I, I think for me in that case, the the, the repetition begins to drive me mad uh, very quickly. Mm. Uh, the yeah. sort of like move here, monster is a square closer. Move here, okay, still chasing me, and you know the the, the pacing, the the repetition. Like I like I can see them getting better at it, but it also always still feels a little bit. Um, a, a little, a little arbitrary to me. I mean, I, I don't like NetHack, so I'm not going to comment too much on it. I think other roguelikes do that better. But I will say, the first time I beat a roguelike was a very emotional experience, and um, in fact, actually, more emotional was the first time I nearly beat a roguelike, as in I got to the final level and then horribly died. <laughs> and I can't describe the tension I felt, even just. Um, this is an ADOM, and just coming towards the last level, and you kind of you have to insert these keys into locks that open up the last level. I, I was so nervous just pressing the mm. use button on the keyboard yep. to insert these keys into locks. Something I knew was a safe process, but I I was properly shaking, properly like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Oh my god! And and getting to see these bits of the game that I'd I'd never seen before, and um, my excitement of of nearly winning, and then the the shock and the dread and the horror and the the fear and the shame when I actually lost uh, was um, <laughs> incredibly overwhelming, and no other game has made me feel that way. And and even these days, when I when I play a roguelike a lot, and then I finally get to to that um, to that achievement of, of of managing to beat it, the you feel really tense at the end because it's turn based. You, you end up slowing down a lot towards the end game. You know, we're previously in the game. You're you're tapping away in the keys and going through very quickly. Get to the game and you're like, press one key. Okay, nothing bad's happened. Press another key. Oh God! Uh, and that tension is is blissful. About the only thing I think maybe some people might be able to relate to if they haven't played Roguelikes is if they've gotten really obsessed with um, getting high scores in a game. Mm-hmm. And um, I know there's some people I know that get very obsessed with this and end up getting like world high scores and things and that feeling of getting like a really super duper high score that's way beyond what you've done before um that thrill and excitement that's uh yeah roguelikes evoke that in me but on this kind of 
slightly more intellectual play level. It's not Twitch-based games. It's me using my brain, knowing the systems, preparing correctly and anticipating things correctly and uh, and finally achieving things through proper implementation of bits of things in my head. We've lost, you know, a lot, a lot of consequence in playing games. And I think that, um, you know, even the concept of permadeath, you know, obviously didn't originate with roguelikes. Uh, Space Invaders had permadeath. Well, you know, of course, you can put in another quarter, but it's a new game. You know, that's the point. The the classic score attack is a permadeath sort of structure. And I think that, um, you know, if I paint with a really broad brush, you know, if you look at like the the prototypical mobile free to play game, um, it's kind of a an equation that really you just input time, you know, it's not so much about, it's not about skill. It's that, look, we're going to give you enough prompts and point you in the right direction that it's just a matter of kind of converting time into results. And if you want to shortchange the time or, or reduce the time, then you put in a little money. And I think that uh, the reason we've seen, I think there's definitely a through line and a relation to the other resurgence uh, of games we're seeing, like things like dark souls, um, you know, which, Dark Souls and, to some degree, roguelikes, uh, and no, I'm not claiming they're the same thing, but the point is you're risking something a little bit more. Like, you know, it, Uncharted, you have to reload a checkpoint. Dark Souls, effectively, you reload a checkpoint, but you're out whatever incremental progress you had made uh, along the way. And also, there's a presumption that it's, you know, if you fail a few times against the boss, it's not going to then make the boss easier, uh, you know, or eventually kind of get you to where you need to be. I think a lot of games uh, in the last 10 years have gotten to the point where it's kind of like the parent running behind you um, holding the back of the bike and you feel like you're riding. I'm riding. You know, whereas uh, roguelikes and classic arcade games and things like that, um, they will, un, you know, unceremoniously let you doom yourself. And, and, and then it's up to you to learn how to avoid that in the future. So there's that I think that sense of really being out there in this big, bad world that's out to get you. And maybe that's why the, the sense of accomplishment, because I think in order from a design perspective to have truly meaningful decisions with, uh, you have to have consequences. Um, and I think a lot of games are more about kind of just, you know, shepherding you through uh, an extremely well-crafted, well-scripted experience. And people are kind of longing to return to, you know, something that isn't giving them kudos for every single thing that they do, you know, like, Hey, you tapped on the monster. Good job. Here's a bag of gold. Um, you know, and, and, uh, you know, in this kind of, and I think roguelikes do this extremely well is like, well, Michael's story there about being seven and a half hours into a game and dying. Um, that's great because it it provides this tension. There's a story like failure is, you know, part of the experience, and and so when you are able to succeed, it's that much sweeter because you you've really earned it. See, I have a suspicion that because as I think about this, I'm not actually sure it's necessarily even about the permadeath or even the sense of accomplishment. What I think is is, is sort of just I'm guessing that it's probably the most appealing part of it, just because it seems to be what's what's borrowed the most, what seems to be uh, what what sort of seems to inspire the most in in other genres, and that is it. Sort of seems like for permadeath to be meaningful, it actually needs to be tied to as simple as perhaps yeah, it could just be progress through through a story through a game uh, closer to the end. But I think what I see happening more and more is it's about acquiring it's it, these games let you acquire things, but you don't have them. They're not yours to keep. They're only they're only 
yours as long as you live. They only exist for the length of this one run. And I think what what seems to what seems to be the most popular thing is just this idea of you you go out and because a lot of games do sort of have these these sort of uh, you know unlockables you 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 pick up items you gain more and more power and that that's all very standard. What seems to be more and more in vogue now is all of it is accompanied by this this awareness that any moment it can all be snatched away somehow. Um, and it's not just that you're, you're reset to the start of the dungeons or the restart of the, you know, the, the start of the game, but it's that all these cool tools you had, um, the things that, you know, gave the, the things that had you saying, like, I'm in the middle of a great run. All of those are suddenly snatched away from you and you're back to your sort of powerless starting state. And that seems to be actually like, when I look at it, that seems to be what, is driving a lot of design right now. That seems to be what a lot of people are, are working from. Is The permadeath itself creates a degree of suspense, but it also seems to be tied, in a lot of cases, to in-game possessions and their, and their fragility. Or any sort of progress that you make as a character. You, you manage to get you know, a new ability that you've leveled up to or something. You're going to lose that when, uh, when you die. And that tension... Um, I think is really important in roguelikes because, like I was saying before, roguelikes are about the gameplay. When you can die at any moment, you really care about the gameplay. Mm-hmm. It's not like in, in Skyrim where you just dive in recklessly and then keep hitting the, the attack button and if you die, oh, if you die, then just, oh well, reload, maybe do something smarter next time. In a roguelike, you've got to do the smart thing the first time. You've, and because of that, you've got to know the mechanics. Um, and that counts for these kind of roguelike likes as well. You've got to you've got to know the interactions in Spelunky to be able to take on a level well. Um, and it really makes you pay so much more attention to the game itself. The game matters. It's not just an experience. It's something that you are really deeply lodged in and, and properly wired into. Yeah, rewarding your knowledge and your investment in learning the game. Um, Michael mentioned Super Mario Brothers, which obviously is not a roguelike, but it's the same experience, I think, in the sense of like some games are meant to be, some games are meant to be uh, experienced and beaten, and then some games are meant to be played and replayed. Did and you I mention Mario, you know, or did I, I'm just curious, Michael? Which game did you mention? Because I thought I heard Mario as well, but that confused. Yeah, me I thought he bit. said Super Mario Brothers. Yeah, I brought up Mario just as an example of like as a kid when you had something that you were able to finally beat. Okay. Um, Kind of like going back to when was the last time I, I got an emotional response from a game? And, you know, I I don't get an emotional response from beating Bioshock. I mean, I experienced the story what and that's great. You, man? Well, <laughs> I mean, obviously I was, uh, you know, floored by the existential uh, implications of it all, but I wasn't proud of it. <laughs> um, but I was proud when I beat Mario as a little kid and, you know, beating Dungeon Crawl brought back that that uh, that sense of childlike accomplishment and wonder and merriment and all that jazz. Yeah, like a lot of those games you beat them and you're you know, you you don't need to play it again. Um yeah, when when I beat BioShock I didn't feel like playing it again. I mean, I thought okay, well and I'm not taking anything away from it. It's just kind of a different experience whereas I think games that really reward your your knowledge and your interpretation of the mechanics so that 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 yields more benefit like on repeat playings. You know, it's kind of like um, the more that you bond with the game, the more that you grok it, then um, the more it rewards you upon subsequent playing. And then that's directly, generally directly uh, experienced as, you know, a higher average progression through the game. You know, like if you're 
if you've played a lot of NetHack, well, you know, unless you're just really unlucky, you're probably not going to die immediately because you know you're you know you're a little bit cagey. You have some street sense, and <laughs> you're like, okay, well, I'm not going to drink from everything, or I'm not going to, um, you know, just you know, be completely blind about my my approach to the dungeon. But conversely, you could take that knowledge and say, actually, because um, you see this with a lot of, um, I think a lot of games where that are run-based, you know, that you know is just uh, run-based, you, you want to quickly know whether you're going to um, be set up for a decent run. So you might take a lot of risks up front based on your knowledge, knowing that if it doesn't pan out, that's fine. You'll just start again. But if you can get lucky and sort of get a, a leg up on on things, then you're really settled in for a big run. It's it's almost like going into a, a crazy poker tournament where you're just like, I just push all in right away. And if I double up, then I know I'm in for the long haul. Otherwise, you know, I'm just going to move on to the next table or something. But either way, it rewards your knowledge and experience. And a lot of games don't do that. I mean, I think that's kind of my point about the, mm-hmm. the kudos based, uh, you know, prevalent theory of game design. Like you can't you can't churn people out of Candy Crush on their first playing and expect them to hang around and have a chance to monetize, you know. Um, and so that's just fundamentally they can't approach that. And one of the beauties of, I guess, a lot of games like this is, um, hey, man, you know, if you, we will reward your time, but we don't suffer fools and the game doesn't suffer fools. And so if you come in expecting to, you know, conquer the world immediately, um, this is not the game for you. And I think a sign of a game that does it really well is that it respects the player in the sense that it at least is fair. And for these games with like zero margin of error, you can usually look back and say, I died here and it was my fault. I, I, I'm, I stepped outside of what I knew was the system or the right way to do it, and now I'm dead. Whereas sometimes it's maybe a net hack, or I think Dungeons of Dreadmore is a more recent roguelike that I enjoy just fine, but there's plenty of traps and things where, you know, a full health character can just step on an unknown trap and, and one shot dead. And that's much less satisfying, right? Because then it's really just kind of a game of chance. Oops, I hope I don't step on that. And I can only think of maybe one time where I felt, you know, in a game like Crawl where that wasn't my fault or I didn't do something stupid. And sometimes you have to go on a forum and say what went wrong. But the games that do this really well... Um, give you the chance to make that error. And it's that zero margin of error, you know, one one bad mm-hmm. move, but it was your bad move that, that ended the game. I tend to prefer it when that, when that zero margin of error comes after a little length of time. I think that's what would chase me off a game like Crawl, right? Uh, in addition to the just simply god-awful presentation of instructions... Um, thank you, Michael, for sending me into that Vietnam of uh, FAQs. Um, it's pretty straightforward, Rob, th- and I, I had a slot set aside. For I don't. You. I don't think I. I, I question <laughs> your definition of straightforward, Michael. Hey, uh, crawl, crawl is a good standard compared to many roguelikes. <laughs> oh man, yeah. See, this is what I mean by about not being native to the genre. But I, I think what what I te- like, I can't play a game. I think at that pitch. For, for all that long like it needs to be sort of an intermittent thing like you totally get like when you were describing uh darren sort of when you're when you're beating a game and suddenly you're you're getting very cautious about basic commands where it's like this is this is second nature you just know it and suddenly you're like hesitating and like you know you're touching the keyboard like it's you know like it's connected to a bomb or something like i totally <laughs> i totally have those moments like the end of sneakers where like robert redford is like trying to move in slow motion through the motion detector office um where you just have to be really deliberate and careful but i prefer it when that comes up 
as sort not as a matter of course, but in sort of special circumstances, right? And like where sort of like in a game like Invisible Ink, it starts happening when you're in the middle of an amazing run where you've just looted this facility. You're carrying more stuff out of there than you've gotten in the last like two or three missions combined. But you stay too long at the fair and now you just need to get the hell out. And if you make one mistake, team members are dead and this entire run is going to fall apart. And I love that stuff like situationally. But man, does it start does it start to drive me crazy when I can't be inattentive even for one moment in mm. a game, and that's kind of, kind of how I feel uh, in a lot of your sort of classic classic roguelikes, where like a game like Crawl is like, oh man, I just I, I stepped left when I should have stepped right, and that pretty much doomed me several turns later when I got cornered. As a brief aside, Rob, I have to ask. Last you just brought up sneakers, and last week I put the tagline for the Invisible Ink show as a quote from the movie Sneakers. Is that coincidence, or did you actually recognize <laughs> that that was there? Of course, I recognized it. Like that's one of my favorite movies. Okay, then I'm extremely satisfied that at least one other person in the world besides me recognized that. And then to actually address your point, I think it actually just comes down to personal preference mm-hmm. and personality as far as what you're. What, what kind of hinky bullshit are you, you really willing to put up with? <laughs> and um, myself, if I decide, like, I want to, to... If I decide that this is the game or this is the tool or this is the program I'm going to learn, then by God, I am going to sit down and do what I need to do to bend it to my will. Um, and I've done that with a few games, and I feel like a game like Dark Souls... Someday will be up my alley. I just haven't sat down to do it yet. But I know when I do, I'll probably do Dark Souls and Bloodborne and all that stuff. But I feel like there's just a group of people who are predisposed to that sort of engagement. And, you know, as a professional game reviewer, I wonder if you're just... I mean, you're all over the place, right? You're you're playing new things all over. There's a degree of dilettantism that's built into it. Right. So, I, you know... it, it may just be that you you don't have the 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 gaming bandwidth to to really commit to a deep passionate love that a lot of the, these games kind of evoke from their their fairly rabid and strict and uh you know to be honest elitist fan base. I would say that there is a lot of variety in different games with uh, just how how much they treat you with kind of constant terror. Uh, there's a thing in roguelike design of what we we kind of call um, like interesting decisions per turn. Like, just uh, is it one ten turns? Is it one twenty turns? Where you're going to be making a really critical decision, and just how many mistakes can you let the player get away with before they're going to die? Um, and some games give you more of those. Some games give you less of those. Um, and some games like FTL that you know they give you different difficulty settings so you can kind of adjust that yourself. Uh, some games like Crawl are are designed for this sort of obsessive player that uh, don't mind hitting their head against a brick wall a few times until they they make their head hard enough to go through that wall. Uh, but th- there's definitely enough scope of roguelikes out there that you can find some that don't have this relentless pace of constant threat and and they more kind of segregate it out. One thing I like to do in my roguelikes is. Um, Make the regular enemies interesting in that they're not mindless to kill, but make the real challenge come in regular bosses, which require a lot more thought and focus to kill and will ruin you if you don't take them seriously. And there's other kind of design things like that to help with uh, to help with how players find the game. 
Um, another problem, of course, is that when you have randomized content, you can get these difficulty spikes. Um, and if you don't know the game very well, these difficulty spikes will seem much worse to you because it will seem like out of the blue this, this terrible thing has happened, whereas an expert player might know to have a certain thing equipped or to take certain steps in place beforehand so that even if something like that happens, they can maybe manage it. Yeah, that comes down to pacing. And I think that uh, you know, pacing to a rail shooter is life because... Um, you know, you are you are strictly dictating the experience that the you know the player is going to have. You know exactly what enemies you're throwing at them at what time. You know when you're going to reveal a giant view and when you're going to swell the music or have a downbeat or whatever. And you know there are people, uh, you know level designers by trade, um, need to be understand pacing. And one of the dangers of purely kind of a procedural approach, and you see this a lot, I guess in um, maybe things that have taken procedural too far or or good promising games that would have been great if they hadn't used procedural content is that, yeah, you can either have difficulty spikes or uh, or just essentially, you know, flatline. It's like you'll have sections that are just completely flatline pacing or um, going from nothing's going on to you died in one step just because, <laughs> you know. And, and I think that um, the really good systems like i guess what you're saying there darren is you're almost incorporating the ideas of pacing from maybe other mediums and trying to bring that into the roguelike because i mean i think net hacks like that and probably one of the reasons maybe you don't like it i don't want to speak for you but just based on what you said is <laughs> you know it is it is quite uneven and you know it's just you never know what's what's about to happen and you know if you're lulled into a sense of you know one of the things that kills me the most on something like um net hack is you know, when I decide I want to use the auto run key or whatever and just, you know, or you'll just kind of start hammering on the keys because you know that, okay, well, this is early and not a lot is going along. And then all of a sudden you you kind of parse your way right through a really critical event. Um, and I find that if, if I'm not in a really attentive mindset, that's also what happens. And so maybe going to what Michael's, or, or sorry, uh, Rob, you were expressing concern is like, you definitely have to have a mindset of like endurance if you're willing to persevere and be alert and the moment you kind of lose your focus especially the farther you get into something it's a good time to maybe save and quit out <laughs> i've done that before where all right you know i'm a bunch of levels down but i'm actually kind of getting tired and i know that one keystroke could invalidate this whole run so i'm gonna just like go take a break that's something i definitely learned to do with um like one of my favorite games so far this year was sunless sea um, it's dangerous because it's a perfect uh, it's a perfect play late at night game because uh, it's so dark and moody and atmospheric and it's it's really seductive that time of night. But come two in the morning uh, when you're probably most into it is also the time when you absolutely need to punch out and stop playing because it's definitely the the sort of quintessential like you know you, like you start to get casual about it and you just like go on that one last run and that's the end that's the end of you. Uh, yeah, it's definitely <laughs> knowing when to quit, uh, and a similar thing with with Invisible Ink. Uh, sort of that in a different sense. That's a game where you have to know when to leave a mission. Um, you know, when you when you just need to need to understand that there's limitations you're going to run up against, and uh, if you if you screw up, that's that's the end of a lot more than than just this one mission or this this one encounter. There's a kind of trope in roguelike circles of um, just when things are going well, that's when you're going to die. Because it's, it's when you feel confident and when you feel things are going easy, you get a little bit sloppier. And you, know, you press that key too many times or you don't pay too much attention to what's around the corner. That's when death really hits you. 
another thing I find with uh, new roguelike players, people that come to the genre that have never experienced it before, have never had a taste of permadeath before, um, is something I call the hero trap. Because one of the things where roguelikes differ a lot from uh, all of other games, in my opinion, is that you don't play a hero. Um, you don't play someone who is destined to win. So many RPGs and, and other games teach us that you, know, you are the chosen one. And you know, here's all these special abilities you get given. Here's all these rewards you get given. Every quest uh, thing that you go on, every time you get like a notification, do you want to accept this quest? The automatic answer is yes. You very rarely see a thing in Skyrim or something and someone says, would you mind fetching this, this orb from this dragon lair for me? And you say, oh, no, I don't think I want to kill dragons because that sounds dangerous. <laughs> you don't have it. You say yes and you go and do it. And if it doesn't work out, you reload to your save point. In roguelikes, you actually have to stop and think, do I want to do that thing? Um, because you're not a hero. You're, you're a rogue. You are someone sneaky and cowardly and has to use every little trick in the book to get by. Uh, you can't just barge in and wave your sword around and expect to win. Uh, one of the, the classic things in FTL is uh, there's a, a mission that comes up, a sort of dialogue thing, saying that there is a, a space station being overrun by giant alien spiders. Should you send your crewmen in to help? And there's two options. And uh, the first option is, of course we'll help. Giant alien spiders are no joke. And the second, second option is, uh, I don't think we can help you here, or something like that. And most new players to FTL do not see the second option. The second <laughs> option doesn't exist because they are conditioned by other games to always accept that, of course, will help. Because that is just the, the automatic response in, in any game. And they don't see the irony in the phrase there, giant alien spiders are no joke. And sure enough, if you take that quest, you are very likely to regret it. And this number of times I see uh, FTL players moaning about giant alien spiders, and you say to them, well, why didn't you just say no to the mission, and they're like, oh, I could say no to it. Just didn't realize it at all. Yeah, there's, there's a, a similar thing it... Sorry. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, interesting. There's a similar thing just playing a rogue, like you're wandering around uh, a hall, you see a dragon coming down the corridor. You have a choice at that moment to run the heck away or to try and kill it. And for a lot of new players to roguelikes, they don't realize there is a choice at that moment. Um, and it's only later on when the dragon kills them, they, they stop and think, what could I have done differently in that battle? They never stop to think, could I have avoided that battle entirely? And this is a big problem with kind of player psychology in people that aren't used to roguelikes, of, of thinking that they can be the hero and, and they should charge in and do things, when actually they should consider all their options at all points. And you always have to be mindful of your, of your position and what might be coming and whether you should be avoiding things instead of killing them. Yeah, that presumption of success is something that we've played with a lot in Darkest Dungeon. We, we, like when you start the game, or actually before you even create your first game, we, I think we pop up a message that says, effectively, uh, th shit's going to hit the fan, things are going to happen, heroes are going to die, quests are going to fail. Um, because we're actually trying to condition you that, yeah, this isn't like most of the RPGs where, um, where that presumption of success just dictates, it's just a matter of time until you do. You know, you, you reload the save game as necessary, you, um, you know, because the plot must move on. And uh, I guess similar to, it sounds like Invisible Ink, um, one of the things that we do to kind of, um, that, that's really a key mechanic, but most new players to the game are completely oblivious about is the fact that, yeah, you can abandon a mission. And in fact, you should abandon a mission 
to save heroes that you don't want to die because we have permadeath on an individual hero basis so for example um you know and it doesn't matter too much when they're you know when they're raw recruits but you know once they've leveled up a few times and you know maybe they're your a team because uh, in dark Dungeon you kind of manage a roster so a lot of times what ends up happening is you've kind of got your a team and your b team and your expendables and things like I that i heard somebody describe it as championship dungeon manager uh which yeah. i which i thought was just about perfect <laughs> yeah i could i could see that um and you know we want you thinking about your roster and the greater goal i think that's the biggest thing is your goal and it's not in the game yet but your goal eventually will be to essentially close out the darkest dungeon and um how you do on this particular quest is is not the critical determiner of whether or not you can you know complete the game and it really yeah it's very interesting to see that people are just completely conditioned not to think that way like well of course i need to complete this this particular mission and uh so often you know they'll kind of uh, complain about a hero that died or or something like that and you know the more i guess experienced players or probably probably classic roguelike players that have come to the game because they understand some of those mechanics a little better you know they'll chime in i love to see the discussions because they chime in and they say well what happened well you know i got party wipe and a party wipe's a great example. To get a party wipe, you effectively have to have lost one person, said, I'm going to keep going on, lost the next one, I'm going to keep going on, lost the third one, I'm going to keep going on, and then, you know, the fourth one. So you, I call it tin cupping it, like there was that Kevin Costner <laughs> right. movie where he, he gets to the hole where he's, you know, he's trying to, he's a risk taker, so he's trying to hit the ball over the water on the really risky shot, goes in the water, and, yes, you know, instead ball. of taking... Yeah, take, taking uh, the safe, you know, placement, he just keeps hitting it into the water. And I think that, um, you know, the way Party Wipe works in a traditional RPG, oh, shit, you know, we got Party Wiped, we lost the mission, reload, let's let's approach the fight differently. And in this one, because it's auto-saving all the time, um, but yeah, that, that button is always there. The, the abandon, go back to town, you know, you lose a little bit of time. Really, what all you lose is time. Um, and then you, you need to treat your heroes because they're a little bit stressed out. But it's just amazing how foreign of a concept it is for, for players nowadays to the idea that they could lose that mission but win the war, you know. Um, and that we've had a lot of fun, I guess, playing with that. And that's so many of the mechanics are built around that. You have to have a little bit of forgiveness um, because I guess like uh, Darren was saying, if, if, if you couldn't run from the dragon, then the game's just being cheap. Oh, you got a bad spawn. A dragon appeared, it killed you. Or the killer bees, you know, appeared and they killed you. Um, w- without some way of mitigating that, uh, then it's just it comes down to the game being cheap. But if you if you can think outside the box, you know, well, shit, I hit the killer bees, or I waited around and the killer bees, you know, spawned and respawned, and and they overwhelmed me. Well, why didn't you just go down, you know, to the next level? Just leave it, leave the dungeon, leave that level unexplored. Most people are completionists now because um, you know all the games have achievements, achievements yeah. and. Uh, you know, you want 100% every game. And some of these, by nature, are designed not to be 100% if you want to survive. Uh, speaking of knowing when to quit, uh, I think we've that about does it for, for our show today. Smooth. Yeah, and absolutely. <laughs> like Given that we've had a sneakers reference and a tin cup reference in, in one show, um, I don't think it's going to get better. We're, we've pretty much covered my, uh, my, my cinematic background there. Um, so that does it for our discussion of roguelikes. Uh, my thanks to Darren, Tyler, and Michael for lending me their time and expertise. Uh, Tyler, we're going to have to get you back when when the game finally releases. It goes 1.0. We're going to discuss that game in detail because I find it really interesting. We've had you on the show twice, and we've sort of been talking about your game obliquely. Uh, but at some point, I, I wanted to sort of deep dive into that, and I'm looking forward to that. 
Thanks. You know, that'd be a lot of fun. And if you want to listen to a podcast that's all about roguelikes all day, every day, uh, you can listen to Darren's Roguelike Radio. And where can we listen to that, Darren? Ah, thank you. Uh, I must say, Roguelike Radio started because uh, uh, Andrew Duell, in particular, who started it, was inspired by Three Moves Ahead and wanted a podcast that was about roguelikes as much as about strategy games. And so uh, we're greatly inspired by you. Roguelikeradio.com. Uh, as always, you can discuss this episode with us on the Idle Thumbs forums. You can also listen to other great Idle Thumbs shows from the Idle Thumbs network. Uh, this week, for instance, the Idle Thumbs podcast lo- takes a look at one of 3MA's favorite shows, Twilight Struggle. So head over to idlethumbs.net and give it a listen. Uh, the Idle Thumbs network also sells ads and honor mentions now. If you would like to buy a short personal ad on this show or on another Idle Thumbs network show like Terminal 7 or Dota Today, you can do that at the Idle Thumbs store at store.idlethumbs.net. We'll be back next week with another episode of Three Moves Ahead. Until then, good night. <laughs>